You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wyatt, Terry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, JT Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Robin Mock, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm super excited to have Jeffrey Archer on the show with me. He has a fantastic new book uh, in his William Warwick series. It's book five, I believe it is. It's called Next in Line. And what a fortuitous time uh, for this book to come out. Uh, I, I I read it a few weeks ago, but then with the uh the events going on in in Great Britain right now it it uh, it struck me as as oddly um, timely. We'll just put it that way. Uh, I love the book and I know that you are too. I love the whole William Warwick series and what you're doing with it. Um, welcome to the show, Jeffrey. Thank you, Hank. And it's interesting you say that because I conceived the idea of the book two years ago, wrote it a year ago. And as you rightly say, you read it several weeks ago. Right. I had uh, already decided at that time that William Warwick, in his progression from constable to commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, in book five would be a chief superintendent and would be in charge of royalty protection. In other words, protecting Her Majesty the Queen with his number two, uh, Ross Hogan, Inspector Hogan, taking care of the protection of Princess Diana. So I couldn't have known that uh, the monarch would die. In fact, uh, if I were to be honest with you, Hank, I thought and hoped she'd live to 100. I think everyone had that that same hope. That, uh, and and it seemed that she would. It, was, it, it really mother, came as a shock to everyone, I think. Her mother did. Well, the shock came that only two days before her death, uh, she she signed in a new prime minister. Exactly. And we all watched it. It was and exactly. And I looked at her. I thought she looked a little fragile, but she appeared to carry out her duties. Right. As monarch uh, accepting a new prime minister with her usual skill, diligence and wisdom. And so uh, when two days later, she was no longer with us, that was a tremendous shock. It, it was. It was. Um, we, we've gotten a little bit ahead of ourselves in, in the conversation, but um, I, I want to dial back for just a minute and we'll come back to, to William Mark. We begin each show with, with the same question. And that question is, what is your first memory of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? Well, I'd been a member of Parliament, Hank, at far too young an age, at the age of 29, assuming I was uh, going to have a long career in politics, because I was in what we call in this country a safe seat. I had a 10,000 majority. But I very foolishly invested in a company on the advice of the Bank of Boston mm -hmm. and lost a fortune. And... Uh, the stupidity was putting even more money into it that I didn't have, which I borrowed. 
And when I was facing bankruptcy, thank heavens I never went bankrupt, I conceived the idea on leaving Parliament of writing not a penny more, not a penny less, <laughs> the story of four men who lose a fortune and decide to steal it back from the person who stole it from them. But they mustn't go over the top because that would be stealing. They have to take back only what he took. And so I would say I was very unusual in that way, Hank. I came to writing by mistake. And indeed, my first book was t turned down by 17 publishers. Wow. He sold the 18th publisher, only managed 3,000 copies. Indeed, at the end of my first year, uh, of, of publication, my wife Mary said, I think it's time for you to find a real job. <laughs> but I battled on, and as you know, Cain and Abel uh, had this amazing breakthrough of selling a, a million books in the first week and has now been read by 100 million people. So my life changed overnight with my third book, Cain and Abel. It, it's so interesting because Cain and Abel is one of those books that, like you said, is life changing. There's uh, after a book after a book like that has the success that it has, that there's no turning back. It's there's you, you've crossed a Rubicon of, of sorts um, when you were writing that novel. Was there anything different about the creative process of that book? that would have given you any inclination that this was going to be the one that went supernova? Absolutely none. I handed it in. My agent said, we're not going to sell this book. We're going to auction it. So I said, what does that mean? My agent was a wonderful lady called Debbie Owen. She said, I'm going to show it to the 11 big houses in the United States. I'm going to give them five And after they've read it, I'm going to hold an auction. And I said, well, what happens if nobody bids? He said, well, it won't get published. And the auction began on a Monday morning and finished on a Friday night, just after midnight, and sold for 3200000 So I suppose I should have then Hank, thought, hello, something strange is happening here. But, you know, even then I didn't have the confidence <clears throat> to believe clearly what the publishers believe. <coughs> so, um, excuse me for a moment. Sure. So, uh, the, uh, another nine months, months went by before it was published. <coughs> I was with, luckily, with Simon and Schuster, a very distinguished American house. And sure. uh, I was edited by the great Corley Smith, who'd edited J.D. Salinger. So I knew I was in safe hands. Right. And after, uh, Six weeks with him, they had the final copy. Um, and still, I wasn't <laughs> confident. <coughs> and still, it came as a shock. And I sat back and watched, and my life literally changed overnight. Right. We, we talk a lot about the, that first book um, and how you have the gift of anonymity. Now, you know, you were obviously a public figure and, and a lot of people knew who you were. But in the literary circles, um, you 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 weren't an established figure. Let's just. Unknown. Unknown. Right. Yeah, right. Um, 
so then you 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 know, and there there's something different that happens when no one knows you're writing a book, no one expects anything from you. And it's a it's a unique gift that you have to live in that space. Uh, but then when you have a book like Cain and Abel that sells millions of copies and all of a sudden, uh, you know, anytime anyone walks into a bookstore, there you are. Um, does that make the process more difficult afterwards? Because, uh, you know, one thing we say is the at the beginning of a book, the blank page is kind of the great equalizer. Everyone starts at the same spot, no matter what your past success has been. Everyone faces a blank page eventually. What's it like to follow up that sort of success? You know, I didn't think of it that way. Good. Um, (laughs) I followed it with the prodigal daughter, who was the daughter of Abel and had married the son of Cain and wanted to be the first woman president of the United States. And I thought that with my love of politics, particularly British and American politics, I thought that was a good theme. So I didn't actually go through the process you're accepting. And I learned only the other day, Hank, from a dear friend of mine who's recently retired from publishing. Uh, He rang me up and said, how's the next book going? And it was next in line. It was my story about Princess Diana. And I said, very well, thank you. And indeed, it is my 26th book. And he said, you know, I have authors on the line. Pick up what you said, Hank. He said, I have authors on the line once a week who said, oh, hell, I haven't got an idea. I don't know where to go. And they've often had a touch. They've often had a feel of it and haven't been able to replicate it. And I can't complain about that. I've never had writer's block. I know the next three stories. And I'm 82 years old. So (laughs) no, that, frankly, Hank hasn't been a problem. Yes. The other side of your question is correct. Are you aware there are millions of people out there who reach you and might well say, well, he's not up to the standard he used to be, is he? Well, he's falling off, isn't he? Yes. When I'm writing, I'm very conscious of that. And that may be the reason I still do 14 drafts of every book and do not hand it over to the publisher until I'm convinced it's the best I can do. Now, it may not be good enough for the reader, Hank, but I have to believe in my heart. It's the best I can do. You, you are famous for your 14 drafts uh, of the editing and re-editing your manuscripts, and I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, what is your editing process like? And you, you know, when, when you, after you finish that first draft, do you set it aside for a period of time and kind of let your uh, let it leave your immediate consciousness and then come back to it with fresh eyes? First draft takes about six weeks. Okay. 50 days. Uh, takes about 300 hours. And yes, I hand it over to my personal assistant, Alison, and she types it up and hands it back. Triple space. But the answer to your interesting question is I would say I take a month off. Okay. Back a month. And then I go back to what I call draft four, five, and six, having had a month off, having done other things, having gone to the theater, done one of my charity auctions, 
read a book, whatever it might be. I do a lot of things in between. Go and see a sporting match because I love my rugby and I love my cricket. So that month will be uh, full of things to take my mind off the book. And then I will go back to my home in Mallorca, the writer's block, called writer's block. I go back to my home in Mallorca and sit down and do draft four, five, and six and hand it back to Alison. And we go through the whole process until we get to about draft 14. Now, when I'm only changing a couple of words on each page, maybe a line every dozen pages, maybe a paragraph every chapter, then I know I'm there and it's time for an editor to read it and a new set of eyes say, we need a little bit more of that, Jeffrey. We need a little bit less of that, Jeffrey. I just, it, I need that. And I'm lucky to have a, a first-class editor at HarperCollins whose great strength is to see how something could be added or taken away. And that is, funnily enough, exactly what I'm working on today. <laughs> so you still work strictly longhand? I write every word with a felt-tip pen. I can't type. I can't even turn on this machine. We're talking to each other from Hank. Alison is sitting one yard away from me in case you suddenly, stupidly disappear and lose me. Because if you do, I won't be able to get you back. So she's sitting here, and, and it has happened when people disappear, and she gets them back in a few seconds. But otherwise, I'd be lost. So answer, no, I'm not a modern man. Uh, I like to handwrite every word. Uh, I like to do it slowly and quietly in my own time. And uh, if my wife, who's a scientist, she always has the latest technical equipment and she buzzes away on it all day. But not me. Not me. You uh, the the William Warwick series. Uh, we're up to book five now. And it, it seems to me that you have had an overarching plan for for this character and and his personal growth and his career uh, all along. Uh, what is your planning process like? Well, I decided I wanted to do something different because after the Clifton Chronicles, several people wrote to me, Hank, and said, your hero in the Clifton Chronicles, Harry Clifton, is an author. And it's obviously right. based on you. And, uh, and Emma, his wife, is obviously based on Mary, my wife. But I thought, I want to write another detective story. Well, there's enough of those out there. That's when I came up with the idea that I would have a, a young man who came out of school. His father, a distinguished Queen's Counselor, would want him to go to Oxford and read law and then join him in chamber. Whereas this young man wanted to be a constable on the beat in London. So uh, he takes no notice father. He goes to London University and reads art history. And then he goes as a copper on the beat in London. And his first uh, real dealings with Scotland Yard are, is in the art fraud squad. So I wanted to do a different subject with each book, while he was a different rank each book. So in the first book, You'd have art fraud in the second book, drugs, 
in the third book, Police Corruption, in the fourth book, uh, and, and so on. And then we get to the murder, and in the, the book we are discussing, he's now reached uh, superintendent, and he is dealing with royalty protection, next in line. But I have to live thanks to the age of 84, <laughs> maybe five, maybe six, if he's going to get to be. I have no doubt he's capable of being the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. It's of just course. whether I live long enough to get in there. So <laughs> I'm still enjoying it. And the answer to your question is I try to make my approach to this slightly different. So the reader would say, yeah, I'm now reading uh, Royalty Protection. He's now a superintendent. Perhaps I'll go back and read what he did as a sergeant. Perhaps I'll wait to see what happens in the next book. Uh, but I'm now in mentally, mentally uh, in the middle of uh, the next book. and uh, know where it's going to be when he will be a chief superintendent and uh, he will be dealing with. No, I'm not going to tell you that. <laughs> well, well, you're you're not allowed to pass on to the next life un, until thank you <laughs> until you finish this. We're we're just right, we're gonna right. we're just gonna demand that right now. Right, right. <laughs> um, do you uh, do you have any sort of formal written plan for a book, or do you hold it all in your head? I hold most of it in my head and, and talk it through to myself a lot and jot down a few notes perhaps. But no, uh, because I'll tell you the problem with that is you, you write a chapter and it goes somewhere you hadn't planned. Right. You've got it all planned out and you're going way over there and in fact going in exactly the opposite direction. It's too late. So you may have a rough plan in your mind, but I can tell you it never goes that way. The pen will take you where it wants to go and you will wise to follow it. Because then if you don't know where you're going, Hank, how can the reader know where you're going? Right, right. Um, when is this book set? 2002. I think. It, I'm, I, I, because I'm in the middle of the next one, uh, <laughs> which I know is 2005-06, I had to think back. Yes, royalty protection... Next in line is 2002. Is there something uh, about writing in the past uh, that has certain benefits than writing a book set in the present with all of the technological trappings that we have? I mean, 2002 is not that far away, uh, but but things have changed in, in well, 20 years. You've got to remember, I started these books in the 1990s. Right. And the Clifton Chronicles way back in the, in, in the 1945 era. And what I've done is I've cheated. I've taken my life because I was born in 1940. And you say, is there an advantage? Yeah, don't forget, I, I've gone through those decades. I've lived through those years. So I can write about them because I've gene yeah. through them. So when we're at 2002, I can remember what was going on in my life. When I get to 2005, I can remember what was going on in my life. So the background material should be fairly authentic because I've been through it. For some people, I'm writing, you're quite right, although it's only 20 years ago, recent history. But, in, but it's part of my life. And uh, that has made, frankly, that makes it easier 
because you remember things that happened, you check things, you go over things, and you try to tell the reader things that they might have missed or didn't even know about. One of the hallmarks of your books is that they are chock full of of very specific details about uh, a wide variety of topics from from art history to uh, finance to politics, you know, kind of all over the place. Um, Is there uh, how do you familiarize yourself with it? Say you're going to write a book and it's going to be about the the royal protection. Uh, How do you familiarize yourself? with those intimate details that really make the story seem authentic? Well, many of the things, of course, I've experienced myself, as I said, but you're quite right to raise that. I have a a chief superintendent, John Sutherland, retired, and a detective sergeant, Michelle Roycroft, who was in the drug squad for 30 years, 20 years, who's retired. And they check all the facts. They, I, if I say it was a desk sergeant who began to fill in the form, they say, no, it's a custody sergeant. If I say it's an order form, they say, no, it's a report form. So they don't allow me to make technical And with each book, I say to them, get me the expert on, in this country on royalty protection. And they arrive a week later with commander somebody <laughs> who has been in charge of royalty protection for 30 years. I give him my book. I don't want him to write the story. That's what I do. And right. again, he will go over. Now, for example, in the book you've just read, uh, Next in Line, Hank, a lot of people have been saying, is the scene with Princess Diana when she's at Asprey's for a lunch and several people start stealing because of silver display. Aspirants have got a wonderful silver display on the table for Princess Diana. Several people have said to me, Jeffrey, is it true that they were stealing the forks and the pepper pots? And and I said, yes. I got that from Ken Wharf, who was her royalty protection officer. And I said, why didn't you do something about it, you worm? And he said, (laughs) My job to protect Princess Diana, not to be after people who steal pepper pots. And if I'd gone off to do something about stealing pepper pots and something had happened, Princess right. Diana, during that 10 minutes, it would have been me who was in major problem. So you see, when you say that, Hank, I'm listening to people who've been through it. I'm talking to people who've had that experience. And I've said, you know, Tell me an amazing happening. So I was able to write a whole scene in Asprey. I went over to Asprey's to look, had a look at the silver, had a look at the room, had a look at the whole thing, and was able to write a whole scene on a couple of sentences, he told me. But it was the fact that someone had started stealing silver pepper pots <laughs> uh, right there in front of her that I thought the, the public, my readers, will love that. And the proof is several have come back and said, is that true, Jeffrey? Is that true? <laughs> now, at the beginning of the book, as you know, Hank, it says, uh, is this a true story? Truth is that about half is true and half is But you, the reader, have to decide. Right. True 
and which bit I made up. I love that. Um, there's, uh, you know, as we mentioned earlier, this is a, a really interesting time in in uh, in in world events and and with the the passing uh, of the queen. Uh, there's a lot of interest in America of, you know, because uh, we have this sort of shared history, um, you know. With, what do you mean sort uh, of shared history? <laughs> we have a shared history. You right. were a colony and yeah. we took care of you until you threw us out. That's <laughs> how I see it. Touche, touche. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it, you mentioned, you know, your the the massive book deal that you had with Simon Schuster and, you know, with, with Cain and Abel and you, you've had a very loyal following, uh, in America. Do, do you, do you find that your American readers are, uh, you know, just as interested if maybe even more interested in, in our shared history in, but, you know, because, uh, America lacks a lot of the pomp and circumstance that, uh, that is enjoyed, uh, by the, you know, our British cousins. Do, do you find that across the pond there, there's a special interest? Well, I think that's the lucky thing, Hank, because I write what I write and pray. And the truth is that the Americans are fascinated by our way of life, as I am fascinated by the American way of life. I sure. followed every presidential election and have many friends in the United States. So it's a two-way river, this one. And I've loved uh, studying American. I mean, Jefferson, who is a big factor in the new book, has been a hero of mine forever. Franklin, I think, is one of the great people of all time. And uh, so it is a two-way street. But yes, if I dare to say it without you jumping down (laughs) the microphone and cutting me off and never speaking to me again, Hank, the one big thing that's come out, or many big things come out of the tragic death of Her Majesty, uh, but one of the big things come out when it comes to ceremonial, when it comes to organizing and running a great state occasion, frankly, I don't think anyone does it better than the British. I, I have to agree with you there. I have to agree with you. Uh, and uh, our, our television has been tuned to um, the the news from from Great Britain for for the last several days and and will through the continuation of next week i'm sure uh and it's uh it's a it, it's nice to see that uh uh you know that that people can still be honored and and can uh that a, a country can come together for a a mutual um you know display of uh of unity really uh, un- yeah unity yeah that's a in that's, fact i was uh, on television yesterday and said, you know, I wish Her Majesty was alive so she could see mm. how much the British people loved and admired her. I think she'd have been shocked. I was walking through Green Park yesterday on my way to Buckingham Palace where the tents are there for interviewing people. And I was passed by hundreds of people carrying flowers. And the, uh, the body has been moved from Buckingham Palace a coffin has been moved from Buckingham Palace to the Palace of Westminster. And the crowds were just unbelievable. I am a very privileged position as a member of the House of Lords. I will be going tomorrow with my wife 
and I will be allowed to go, come in from the House of Lords end and pay my respect and leave. And I consider that will be one of, one of the most telling moments in my life because I've lived with three monarchs. I was born under uh, King George. Uh, I had 70 years of Queen Elizabeth. And now my monarch is King Charles III. So I've had three monarchs. So to be able, the privilege as a member of the House of Lords, to be able to pay my respect tomorrow will be a very important day in my life. I, uh, I, I can only imagine. And uh, our, our condolences to, to the entire country uh, of Britain right now. Um, next in line. The point you made, Hank, it's true. This isn't just England. I think the yes. whole world seems to have admired her for the loyal service she gave to her country. 100%. 100%. Next in line, William Warwick, book five, is available now everywhere when you're hearing this. Uh, we'll put links to all the places where you can buy it in the show notes of this episode. If you want to hold the hardcover in your hand or Kindle edition or audiobook, it's available everywhere. Um, Jeffrey, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show today. No, thank you, Hank, for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. And I always enjoy buying interview, being interviewed by someone who actually has read the book <laughs> and knows what they're talking about. So I'm very grateful. Thank you very much indeed. 